0: listening to the Down the Pub podcast Canada's premier football show head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode Welcome to the Down the Pool podcast. I'm your host Anthony Abbott. This week's guest is the 2010 PFAI Player of the Year. He was the most expensive transfer in the NSAL. He was out of Fury's 2014 Player of the Year. He's from Tipperary. Ladies and gentlemen, the management and staff of the Down the Pool podcast are proud to present Richie Ryan. So, uh, welcome to this episode of the Down the Put podcast. Um, I'm going to hate myself for saying this, but we are joined a long way from Tipperary by um, El Paso locomotive player Richie Ryan. Uh, welcome to the show, Richie. Thanks very much for having me, Anthony. Oh, it's, it's, our, it's our pleasure having you on here, man. Um, we're also joined by show stalwarts Chris Serrell and Carlos Benitez. Welcome to the show again, lads.
1: Thank you very much, Anthony, for having us. And thank you, Richie, for being here in the pod.
2: Nah, it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to chatting. What Carlos said. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: <laughs> so uh first question I have for you, Richie. Uh you're playing in uh, El Paso. Uh, how's the move worked out for you and uh how's life uh,
2: down south? Yeah, the the move was good until the last nine weeks, I suppose. <laughs> f- football wise it was a really good move for me. We had a we had a successful season last year in the first season of the club, so um, I was fortunate enough that the move came around when I was leaving Cincinnati. That uh, I, I'd, worked with the, I'd worked with the manager here before, so we had a, we had a good relationship from my time at Jacksonville. and um, it, it was an easy decision for me to come here because of the person that he is and the, the style of football that I knew he was going to implement on the team.
0: So you've kind of started off in when you came to North America. You started in in Ottawa, then you were down to Miami. Now you're in El Paso. So is your next move going to be Mexico, Colombia? Where are you off the next?
2: <laughs> God got only football. <laughs> so so uh,
0: as you mentioned there, like you joined El Paso in their uh, inaugural season, and I think when you joined Miami, that that was there for season
2: two. Um, yeah. Um and the same the same with Ottawa actually. You know, it was their first season in 2014 and then Miami and uh now El Paso as well. Which, must be must be a strength that I have. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: so what's, what's what's it like being
2: at a club at the beginning,
0: like considering that like, you spent a lot of your career at like really old established clubs?
2: Yeah, um it, it's strange. It, it was strange when I moved over first just to because it was the first time I'd experienced it, obviously, but um just to see to see how how much work goes into a club starting out. Um, from a player's point of view, I don't think you, you realise what goes on behind the scenes for the staff and the, the coaching staff trying to put a full squad of 20, 22 players together from all over the world. Um, it's a bit of a task that, that I found out. But to see to see the clubs grow, which I have done, I've, had the, I've been fortunate enough that I've always spent the second season at the club as well. Um, and to see how much the clubs have grown from the first season to the second and obviously there, there's going to be growing pains in any sort of organisation that's starting from scratch um, so to see, to see them grow in the second season um, was something that hopefully I've learned a lot of things from from the, from the playing side of things and, and hopefully the recruiting players side of things which hopefully I'll move into when I, when I do finish playing so, like, you're going to be basically like David Beckham. There, you can start your own
0: franchise, huh?
2: <laughs> yeah, slightly less money. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so, um, like, so you're you're playing with. I think you're playing with Shamrock Rovers in Ireland. Like, obviously, who are uh, one of the the biggest and obviously the best club in Ireland. Um, how did how did the move to Canada
2: happen? I come I had a year left on a year left in the contract at Dundee United and I, I knew I wasn't going to feature uh, in the season coming up in preseason. I think it was 2013 I don't know I was sitting in the back garden one day thinking what's next and I think I, I always had something within me that, that wanted to try play abroad and, and to go and try and experience the game somewhere else um, so I actually I actually just started following a couple of agencies on Twitter what one of them got back to me within a day or so, asked me for some highlight video of me uh, and so on. And within a couple of days I knew there was an option to go to to go to Ottawa. But that wasn't starting until the following season. So I had what, seven oh six, seven months where I, I was looking at maybe not playing. So I didn't wanna I didn't want that to happen. So I looked at options to move back to Ireland and I had the option to, to move to to back to Sligo Rovers where I'd, I'd spent three and a half successful years or, or to move to Shamrock Rovers, which, which appealed to me because it was, it was a chance to, to go and play somewhere else and to go and play for another top club in Ireland. And then I, I was fortunate enough that Trevor Crowley was the manager and, and Trevor, I, I explained the situation to him in Canada from day one, but I hadn't signed the contract. So uh, Trevor was really understanding with me, knew that me and my wife would, would possibly want to move away. So he, he he was aware that that might pop up, but I I was willing to I was willing to go and play there for for the six months. Tre- Trevor ended up signing me for a year and a half, um, just in case the Canadian move didn't come off. But yes. I knew I knew by the end of the season in Ireland that the that the, the move to Ottawa was going to happen. So I had to have a I had to have a tough conversation with Trevor. He's a fair play to him though for uh, hooking. Yeah, up. no. The- I only spoke to somebody a couple of weeks ago, Anthony, and it's something that I'll always I'll always um owe to Trevor to be honest, because if, if it wasn't for him being so understanding, then like the, the journey in North America probably never would have happened for me.
1: This is more like connected to your Ottawa uh yeah. roots. Um, you know, now we have a team called Athletic Ottawa and the CPL. I don't know if you follow the CPL in yeah, Canada, yeah. but uh I'm wondering, like, uh, what's your take on it, and if it was any approach, because you know, like, you, you, you're still in your prime, you're still playing like USL and I'm wondering if has there been any approach, or and also, what's your take on it, like, what do you think about that? Is this good for the CPL?
2: Yeah, I I think it's huge for the CPL, Carlos, to have a to have a club that's that's owned by Atletico Madrid. It, that's a no-brainer for the CPL to get to get them involved and. I think it'll it'll only help the CPL grow over the next few years, um, and then from a from a personal personal point of view, I haven't had any approach. I think there's I think a lot of the club has changed. That I don't know if there's actually anybody still working for the for the new club that was that was there from the Ottawa Fury days. Um, but it, it's a it's a great place to play. I know the the supporters groups that were behind the Fury. Are uh, are fully behind Atletico Ottawa as well, and um, so the, the players that are going to play for the club are going to be very fortunate to to have such a fan base behind them and to play in such a great city.
1: That's great. Uh, that's that that's a great answer. And and going back a little bit um, into your career path, um, Tony Meola in nineteen ninety four was I think was a great keeper and he was a Jacksonville coach, I think, yeah. and he was the one that requested to have you in the squad. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us more about that? How is he, as a coach, I know, like, uh, the results were, like, so-so, but, I mean, like, what was your vision? What was your experience, like, in under yeah. his wing, it, I guess?
2: It was, um, it was a good experience for me. It, it, it didn't last very long because I think I only spent from – January, the end of January, I arrived arrived in Jacksonville. And then I left the middle of May to to move to Miami. But the experience being there for five months was brilliant. I think when Tony took the job at the end of the season in 2015, I know he had a a lot of rebuilding to do in in the squad from the year before. There was a lot of players left. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Tony had to be the one to to bring in all the new players. So... um, it it was like building a building a squad of players from scratch for Tony as well, and um, and then the, we we had a couple of a couple of bad results in the in the first few games, but um, I ended up leaving after after five games, and it was um, yeah I ended up having a strange conversation with Tony as well about he he was very honest with me and he told me that he wanted to stay at the club he wanted me to stay at the club, but that um there was a good opportunity for me to move to Miami and he wasn't going to stand in my way, which obviously I'm I'm very very grateful for Tony for that as well. Kind of stood out last
3: year with Locomotive. I'm a bit of a closet USL fan. And their, their deal with ESPN Plus and the fact that a lot of their games were available on YouTube just drew my attention immediately with my job. I'm sitting in front of a computer all day and even as background noise, having a soccer game on, kind of helps pass the time. And your guys, it was one of my favorite stories in all of soccer, Um, how you guys were kind of pretty much unbeatable and then went on a little bit of a a run where you guys couldn't win a game and then turned it around towards the end to get that solid playoff position where you guys went on a push where you had a guy in Halifax, Nova Scotia here wanting to buy one of your jerseys because I I was ready to support El Paso. I was wondering during that time, what was the turning point for you guys to push to the point where you guys were almost champions?
2: Um, I don't know, there's a simple, like, simple explanation really. During yeah. the middle part of the season, we, we suffered bad with, with some injuries to, to key personnel within our within yeah. team. Um, you know, we went four or five games without our captain. Centre back, and in my opinion, the best centre back in the league, Chiro and Toco. Um, Incredible player, yeah. And then we had a uh, Yuma who who played a lot of the games in midfield beside me, a uh, Spanish player who's who's got loads of experience, played a uh, Royal Vallecano in La Liga seventy or eighty times. So, um, and then Jerome Kizer was our main striker, and we went six seven weeks without Jerome being in the team. So. Um, I think when when you lose that quality within the team that you had at the start of the season and, and put us in a good flow and a good rhythm um, when you lose that quality it, it takes time for players to come in and reach and reach that level and, and as you all know in, in football you don't really get time because games are coming every week and you know it, it's very easy to stay on a roll when you're winning games but it's also very easy to to go the, the opposite way when you lose a couple of games. And uh, I think that's what we, we probably let happen to ourselves mid-season, but we dusted ourselves off. The boys, some of the boys came back fully fit and um, everybody regrouped and, and towards the end of the season, we, we sort of felt, felt like we were unbeatable. Um, yeah. No matter who we played against, play, whether it was Phoenix or um, Reno, New Mexico, all the top teams... And we saw, we had that confidence within us that we were as good as anybody. And I think that's what, that's what took us all the way to the Western Conference final. That was the, the
3: I think it was Reno, was it nil nil 1-1? It was a draw though. I remember you guys like grinded
2: out this beautiful result. And... Yeah, it was a tough uh, tough game away from home. It was a um, tough place to go, Reno. They were a very good team as well. Um, but it I've always said this since I've since came over to North America, if you can pick up if you can pick up a point away from home, that's a, that's a brilliant result. Um, yeah. Because when, when you take into consideration the, the travel and everything, and you travel the day before the game, and you, you might have two flights the day before the game, which, yeah. which back in Europe, is, it's not even heard of, you know? So if you can go away from home and, and pick up a point against a good team, then you, you can pat yourself on the back and be proud of it. Yeah.
3: So were were those good performances on the road? Like I know you guys had a really good game against Phoenix. I think you guys lost that game, but I remember talking to everybody, like these guys, are they're, they're going to go on a run. And then you followed that up down the road. I believe you guys were playing – well, actually, Reno was the away game too. Yeah. Did that help you guys push through in that quarterfinal game against I Fresno? So.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it- – when you go away and pick up results away from home, and Phoenix was a difficult one for us. We went 1-0 down yep. early in the game. And then we got, we got it back to 1-1. And then we had a man sent off. I think it was like yeah. the 35th, 40th, 40th minute. So you, we played 45, 60 minutes um, with uh, down a man in the second half against the top, the top team in the USL. Yeah. Um, and and we, held, we held them to very few chances, shots from distance that our, our goalkeeper would have fancied himself saving if they were on target anyway. <laughs> um, and, and then, and then we, we gave away a penalty, which they put away in the us 2-1. But I think from, from results, obviously a tough loss, but from the performance and the way we dug in as a team and we worked for each other, I think we took great confidence from that to, to take it forward into the, the last part of the season.
3: And I mean, speaking of tough losses, I don't want to bring it up, but that game against Monarchs was one. Like I said, the, your guys' story all season last year was one of my favorite soccer stories. But that game specifically was just there was a lot of poetry to that game. You guys nicking that one late in the first half, them scoring early in the second half, and then I'm getting ready to go for penalties. I, how did that feel, man? I know it's it's a it's a generic question. It's a it's a cut and dry question, but. With, with all the momentum that you guys built, how did that feel after the game in the locker room? What was the, what was the environment like? And coming into this season with the guys that are back, is that the chip on your shoulder?
2: Yeah, I think it has to be. Yeah. Um, we spoke about that already in preseason. Um, yeah, that, that, was, that was gut-wrenching. Yeah. Sorry, bro. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like I said, I'm sorry
3: to bring it up, but like I said,
2: your guys' story, like it, you guys could have made a movie with your season last year. Yeah, look, Chris, if you can't look back, there's no point in just looking back on the good times in, in football. You, of course. You need to look back on the bad ones as well and be able to take them on the chin and, and learn from them. Um, but yeah, it, it was devastating. You know, they got back to 1 1 early in the second half. Then we had a man sent off, and I thought for large parts of the the second half and extra time I thought we'd control the game yep. with, with, with a man down Um and, you know and then it gets to 128th yeah. 129th yes, oh it goes to penalties and you know, penalties you, you hope for the best you you hope yeah. the luck is on your side and um, yeah everybody was devastated after the game everybody was heads down and you, you know it, it's hard to pick somebody up after that. But I, I think the more, the more we reflected on it, the more we thought we'd done well. we done really well to hold out for yep. 60, 65 minutes, a man down again, going into extra time. And I thought we controlled large parts of the game. Yeah, you, and then you, you just wish that we could have held out on the last corner kick and, and maybe done a little bit better on that. Yeah, like I said,
3: I'm sorry for bringing it up, brother, but oh, it's, it's, um, it, it's it's good that you seem to have a positive perspective on the season. And like you said, you guys have already talked about it in preseason, yeah. even with this whole COVID thing putting a a pause on things. What's that looking like for you guys going forward? I know the Canadian Premier League's got some dates set up, and I know some of the some of the leagues in the USL have actually canceled. What's what's your guys' vision for that? Like, uh, have you
2: guys talked about that at all? Yeah. Um, we we spoke about with Chris. We've heard some rumors, but it, we we haven't we haven't got anything in place. So it's it's literally just waiting, waiting to see if they can if they can come up with a plan or a schedule to to get some games back on this year. And um, so it, it, it's it's frustrating because we we all want to play, um, yeah. but we also know that the current situation all over the world is is difficult, and you want to play, but you you have to play in the in the safest way possible. At your age, um,
3: not to say you're old, but, you know, I know like you're in the last chapters of your career. So with this type of situation, does does it make you assess your career differently? Are you, I'm not trying to say, are you looking at retirement? But like, are, are you starting to see things differently now that you're at home with the kids when
2: you should be playing in the midst of the beginning of a season? Yeah. Um, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't thought about things. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 35 now, and I haven't got I haven't got many years left in me. But um, I haven't really thought about retiring at the moment. I just awesome. I, want, I want to I want to play this year if we can. If we can't play this year, then I look to play next year. Um, you now, <laughs> people have probably seen me play down the years. Would say, oh, he's not very athletic. He's not very quick. I always laugh and joke with my teammates, saying, "Yeah, I lost my pace when I was 12 <laughs> and, and that that doesn't bother me. I think I'm the type of player that once once my mind once my mind doesn't doesn't think quick, then I'm in trouble, and then it's time to retire. And um, so until then, as long as the legs keep moving at a slow pace, then then I'm happy to keep going. So basically, the coronavirus
3: hasn't changed anything for you. This is how you've basically seen your career. Yeah.
2: Um, okay. I, I've been fortunate, especially since I've came to North America and, and some, at some clubs when I was younger, that I've, whenever I've had success, I've always had a coach that's, that's played a style of football that suited me. Because um, with me not being the most athletic or powerful or pacey, I, I need to play in a certain team, a team that plays a possession based football, and th- that's to my strength, so I've been fortunate that places where I've had success are where I've had managers that have allowed me to play that way and here in El Paso, i play for another one so if if he if he wants me to retire, then maybe I'll have to rethink it.
1: Do you have any plans to continue your career like after football like let's pretend like I hope like you have more gas in the tank for a few years.
2: Um,
1: after that, are you planning to stay in football, like maybe a coaching career, assistant coach, et cetera?
2: Yeah, that's that's the only option for me, to be honest, Carlos. Um, yeah, I, I'm part of the coaching staff a little bit here in El Paso as well. That was that was one of the things that Mark um, said to me when, when, when I was coming to the club was that I can come and learn from him. Um, so that was... That was obviously a big pull in getting me here as well. Yeah, I, I don't know anything else. I, I left. I left school when I was 16. And I have zero qualifications, and that's the way I wanted to be honest. Because the only career I want is is in football. It's the only thing I know. And it's the only thing I want to know, really. So hopefully, I'll move into the coaching side of things, whether it's here in El Paso when I when I finish playing or or elsewhere.
0: Moving away from uh, down the pub therapy session and it was making you sad that you're old and about to retire, Richie. You need Uh, this. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta be realistic. Do you ever have any dark thoughts? I'm
4: joking
0: so taking it back to uh, taking it back to the start um, you're, you played for Belvedere in Dublin I believe and then you moved over to Sunderland what, how did that move come around and what advice would you give any kind of um, kids who are going to make the same journey um, like now what kind of advice would you give them
2: yeah um Play for Belvedere from when I was 12 to 16. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm not from Dublin. I'm from Tipperary, but I, I was fortunate enough. My old club played a pre-season friendly against Belvedere, and they thought I played well in the game, and and wanted me to go and play for them that season. And then my mum and dad made a huge commitment over the next four years to to drive me up and down every week to Jesus. to Fairview Park, wow, um, which look I appreciate everything my mum and dad have done for me and if it wasn't for them I wouldn't have got the opportunity to 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 make the friends I made in Belvedere and to to get the opportunity to go and play in Sunderland and be a professional footballer so um yeah then I I've been on trials as I'm sure you know auntie back back then all the all the English scouts were based in Dublin like Yeah. That, that was that was where kids needed mm-hmm. to play to get the opportunity to move to England um and I was fortunate enough that Sunderland and a few other clubs in England were interested in me. And then I, when I'd been over to Sunderland on trial and had a look around, and there was there was a lot of Irish, younger Irish players there at the time, so it, it sort of fe- felt more like home for me than anywhere else that I'd been on trial. Um, so it was an easy decision for me in the end. Um, and then moving over it was difficult. 16 years of age, moving away from family, friends. Um, so it took me a couple of months to, to settle in, but you know, you, you end up you cry yourself to sleep many nights in them first couple of months because you, you're only a young kid, So, um, but you, you just have to ask yourself, like, what what do you want? Do you, do you want to be back home with your mates, going to school and like messing about or doing whatever you were doing with your mates before you left, or, or do you want to do you want to give it a go? do you, do you really want to be a professional footballer? Because if you do, then you need to put your head down and, and work hard every day. Train, train hard every day. Watch, watch the older players above you that are doing well in the first team or in the you know, 19s or whatever that are having success and see what they're doing on a daily basis. Um, and to, to be honest with you, I wish I had done that more when I was at Sunderland because I, I think I would have learned things um, sooner in my career that have benefited me later on um, yeah just, just work hard every day and enjoy every minute and, and spend as much time on the training pitch as you're possibly allowed to get better
0: so um, you, you then got uh, called up to the first team uh, Peter Reed was the manager I think at the time oh uh, Big Mick was actually oh really oh wow sorry that's even better <laughs> yeah. Anthony got checked yeah, yeah. but like you, you made your debut against Newcastle is that right Yeah, yeah, came on. So, so, so what was it like being uh, thrown into that um,
2: that cauldron? Um, Strange, because I I actually had no idea I was in the first team squad until Friday afternoon. We played a reserve game Thursday night against Liverpool, and um, I I'd done pretty well in the game, and I trained with the, the on the 19s on the on the Friday morning. I was actually supposed to fly back to fly back to Ireland on the Friday evening for uh, the FAI awards were on Sunday night. So I was flying back Friday to go back to tip for a couple of days and then had the awards Sunday night to fly back to Sunderland Monday morning. And um, the reserve team manager came into the team dressing room after the game, or after training on the Friday. I said, Richie, come here, I want to speak to you. He said, what's, uh, what's your plans for the weekend? <laughs> I said, I'm flying home tonight for the weekend, like, I'll, I'll be back on Monday. And he said, no, no, um, you're not allowed to go. I said, why not? He said, oh, come with me, the gaffer wants to speak to you. I'm like, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> I had, had, had a good weekend planned with my mates at home. So we walked down into the first team side of the the training ground and Michael Gray, who was club captain at the time, left back. He was uh, He was on his way out and he just shook me hand and said congratulations. <laughs> Spoiled the <a> fucking surprise. <laughs> yeah. I just looked, I looked look at the reserve team manager, Jocky Scott, and I said, jockey what's going on? He says, "Yeah, you're in, you're in the first team squad tomorrow for the derby. And, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can Say on here what my response was. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "How would you fuck off, Johnny? <laughs> he said, "No, I'm serious." He said, "No, I'm serious." And then he took me down to. They had the sheet up on the like a notice board outside the gaffer's office, and uh, my name was on the sheet. And it, my heart just started racing. I'm thinking, "Oh Jesus, like, am I ready for this?" Um, and then the gaffer came out of the office and said, "Come in here. I want to speak to you." And he just said, "Look, um, have you got yourself a suit?" I said, "No." <laughs> he said, "Well, go, go get yourself a nice suit in town, and I'll see you. I'll see you tomorrow at the stadium at half one." So we got we got to the stadium the next day, and I'm just sitting in the changing room. And obviously, I'm 18 years of age, and sitting there with Kevin Phillips, at club legends, Jeez, um, nice. Julio Arca, Mickey Gray, obviously huge players for some football I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Just sitting there with my suit on, and then the gaffer came in, like everybody else was getting changed. Obviously they're well used to this routine. And then the gaffer came in about two o'clock and he just looked at me and said, not want to be involved.
0: Oh my God.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You can just just picture that accent that his too, right? Yeah. big harsh Yorkshire man (laughs) looking at me and every time he looked at me I just shit myself (laughs) heart heart was crazy Um, but they had like an 18 man squad back then it was only five substitutes so it was like usually they had an 18 man squad and then two players would just sit it out and you'd have 16 involved in the game so I just presumed I was going to be 17th or 18th man that's why I hadn't got changed and then he, he said that to me and I'm like Am oh, I involved? And he said, "Yeah, there's your kid hanging up." When he half, I thought it was going to be 17 or 18 months. Um So anyway, yeah, it got changed. And then the, the first team players were brilliant with me, and just said to relax and go and enjoy myself if I get on the pitch. And so yeah, I got on with about 20 minutes left, I think, um, and it it was all just a blur. Like you, you couldn't make. Like obviously, it's a huge game. I think there was forty nine thousand at the game. Um, you, you can't make out what the fans are singing or anything it was just just sound I'm just running up up and down the field with sound trying to get the ball off Jermaine Genus and <laughs> Kieran Dyer um, <laughs> just running, running behind them um, no, great, great experience uh, so, something that I look back on now and probably appreciate a lot more now than what I did back then so how many touches of the ball did you get but I remember the first ball I got, I thought, fucking hell, Jody, you haven't done me any favours there. <laughs> Jody Craddock just fired a ball into me like a shot. And I'm like, I've got Kieran Dyer running up the back of me and thinking, Oh, here we go. I, I just I just passed it off one touch back to the keeper. I thought, right, just setting yourself into the game now. Gave Jody a little dirty look and he just smiled at me.
0: Welcome to the fucking big leagues, pal. <laughs> yeah, that's how we pass the ball in these leagues. <laughs> so, obviously, like, uh, the Sunderland documentary's been out. I don't know if you've watched yeah. it uh, on Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. like, how much does it hurt you seeing the club in, the, in, the, in this situation
2: that it's found itself in? Hurts a lot. Hurts a lot. Um, because I, I, I still have a lot of friends there that, that I, I try and meet as much as I can when when we go back to Ireland or Scotland where my wife is from. Um, and they they're all huge, huge supporters of the club. So to, so to see where the club is now, and I I actually went to a game went to a game when they got relegated from the championship a couple of years ago. They played Fulham at home. Yeah, I remember that game. The stadium was half empty. Yeah. I, I think the game the game was actually featured quite a bit in the in the documentary. And the stadium Maybe 18, 19,000 people in the stadium. It's half empty, no atmosphere, and you're thinking, how, how, how have they let themselves get to this? And from watching the documentary, I'm sure you probably think the same yourself. It just seemed like it's been just not well managed over the last over the last number of years. And and the further the further you fall down the leagues in England, the tougher it is to get back up. Oh, I mean, like you, you see, it, you saw it like with,
0: with with Leeds and like Ipswich are struggling a little bit to get back up as well. It's kind of just yeah. one because you're basically half in your. It seems to be like you're half in your uh, your wage bill and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So you just shedding players pretty much, right? And just bringing in new players, and it's a huge turnover.
2: Yeah, so, that that, that seems to be the thing, Anthony, with with Sunderland, especially in the first series of the documentary. Did they, they hadn't really slashed the wage bill that much? Like there was players there that just weren't producing anything for the club, and they were making huge money. Um, and then, and then it, then it comes a turnover of trying to cut the budget again and and letting them players go and trying to, trying to. You then have to identify bringing in the right players that are going to be right for the club. And signing signing for a club the size of Sunderland is is huge for any player. Yep. You need to make sure you produce on the field then.
0: Oh, whatever! Like, I mean, you could see it there, like how much it means to. Like, to, uh, obviously, you want to get forty nine thousand people at your ground every every week, but when you're not doing yeah. so well, people just turn off a little bit. But you could see how much yeah. it was hurting the the, the the hardcore people who, um,
2: who go every weekend. It, it's just, you just your heart breaks for them, right? It, it does, and it, Sunderland as a, as a city is very much that type of working class city, and and the people of Sunderland live for the club fact, they live breathe drink eat that's all that's all they do they live for that club so for, to see to see the club where it is now it, it's very difficult for the people of something so what did just before I pass out to Carlos what,
0: what did you think of the way that Jack Rodwell was uh, portrayed in the yeah
2: um, uh, tough, tough for Jack Rodwell mm. I, I, I genuinely I don't know why they didn't try and use him me either like it, like it, he's, a, he's a decent player. Again, it, it, when you're struggling at the bottom of the championship. It kind of like
3: awkwardly explains what happened to his career, not to throw oh, yeah. a, a, a dynamite in the pool, but he's one of, he's one of the English players who is being, he's, in, he's on all these like top 10, top 20 list of duds, if you will, players whose careers kind of failed based on the expectations and it kind of
2: gave me a picture of what happened to him. Sorry, Richie, go ahead. No, I think it's, he obviously had he obviously had a lot of success in his career when he was younger, being at Everton, Manchester City, two, two huge clubs. But then Sunderland paid a lot of money for him, and they made the mistake of putting a clause in his contract that if they got relegated, his money didn't change. So for, from a player's point of view, if somebody – tries to tell you to, to walk away and leave that money behind you, then it's a lot of money to leave behind you for him to possibly go and sign for a club that's going to give him one-eighth of, mm-hmm. of what he's making. Um, you know, it, uh, football football's not a long career.
0: And that's the, th- that, that's the thing I took from it. Like, I mean, like, I can understand on one side that they were kind of upset that he wouldn't, like, leave. But at the end of the day, as you said, like, I mean, like, the following week he could like Rupture is attending and he couldn't play football again the, the club would probably just have him to, to, to go to hell anyway right so I mean I you can't blame him for sticking around for the money like as you said they they gave him
2: the contract why would he not like like sign it you know yeah well that's, that's why I couldn't figure out why they didn't try and come like he must have just turned into a really really bad footballer all of a sudden yeah because surely he could have done okay for the club surely he could have done better than what was on the field yeah uh, or had more more of an impact than what was on the field when they were struggling at the bottom of the championship
0: yeah it's uh, it's, it's definitely a mystery and I, I you know you, you saw that he was still turning up for training like he's they couldn't fire him or they couldn't find him because he was still going training and he was still doing what was expected of him so yeah, um, yeah. Well, I guess we should move away from the nightmare that's Jack Rodwell
1: yeah Um. in 2010 let's just Move to kind of like a happy <laughs> subject <laughs> now because normally Anthony's is the one that um, blames me that i do i, I do the therapy questions and <laughs> the sappy moments but chris chris,
3: <laughs> take chris is back carlos chris, chris is, back. is i do <laughs> the therapy questions
1: <laughs> so now um let's move to 2010 uh, i think you won the ireland player of the year i think yeah yeah so can you tell us more about that how was the experience like did you know? Like you, I know you were nominated like, with other players, but but you know, like based on your performance, right. when the season started until the season ended, did you know like, yeah, I'm gonna win that? Can okay. can you share that information? Um,
2: yeah, it's actually a story I haven't told too much to be honest. in in two thousand In two thousand nine, we um we got to the cup final with Sligo, and we got beat. Uh, we got beat by Sporting Fingal in the final. And the following week, I had a end-of-season meeting with the, the board at Sligo. And I'd been there, been there probably a season and a half at the time. And probably from my own fault, I hadn't reached the levels that I could reach from not looking after myself off the field, not taking football serious, I suppose, when, when I came back to Ireland. um. And the, the best thing that ever happened to me in my career was, was probably that meeting that I had the week after the cup final. And the, the chairman told me for 60 minutes you were the best player on the field, but for the last half an hour you, you were non-existent. You were just off the pace. Um, and it, it's very hard to take that criticism at that time, but looking back on it, he, he was dead right. I was, I was probably a little bit overweight. Uh, I wasn't able to, to reach the levels that I, that I could. Um and he offered me a new contract of 100 euros a week and wanted me to live back in yeah. Tipperary which was 3 hours drive from Sligo and travel up to train with the team once a week what the so, fuck yeah 100 um, euros a week I, I actually I actually think this is the this possibly the first time I've told this story um I, I've never really I've always thought about it in my own head, and I've, I've never really spoke about it. But um, yeah, 100 euros a week—it's it, a—it's uh, probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, I, I didn't sign for 100 euros a week, but it—it it, it just gave me a reality check, and it, it said mm-hmm. to me, "If you if you want to play football and be serious, then you you need to you need to get your head together." Um, so, I, I spoke to the manager, Paul Cook, at the time. Um, he's the, the Wigan athletic manager now and me and Cookie got along great together, we had a great relationship but I was just letting everybody down I was letting him down, I was letting the club down I was letting myself, my family, everybody down and then I got I got an offer from Galway to move to Galway for a, I think it was like 600 quid a week
4: mm-hmm.
2: and I thought okay, but they're part time they train twice a week no, it's not for me so I said, I said to Cookie, I said, get me the best deal you can get me from the club, and I'll prove everybody wrong. And he did. He, I think, he got me, me four hundred quid a week, okay. and he got me four hundred euros a week, and my housing paid for. I think I got a hundred, a hundred euros appearance money. So I literally did, and um, I wanted to prove people wrong. Um, so I, I, I trained hard for the two months we had off in the off season, and I came back fully fit. Fully focused and, and stronger in my mind. Um, and I, I, I trained hard all pre season with the team, and I think my teammates seen a different side of me in pre season that they hadn't seen for the previous year and a half I was at the club. Because, I, my own admission, I, I was a bit of a jack lad, and um, I was probably focused more on a night out than, than training the next day. Um, yep. I probably tarnished myself a little bit in the first year and a half that, that warrant has been offered 100 euros a week so um, ended up coming back pre-season we started the season really well um, I don't know Anthony might know of Joseph Indo. yep um, Joseph Way came. Far. yeah um, probably the best player I've ever played with to be honest um, Joseph came into the club maybe 3-4 games into the season and he I'd started the first few games really well, and then Joseph came to the club, and, and he took my he took my game to the next level because he, he was just an outstanding person and an outstanding footballer. Um, that he he just lifted he lifted the whole change room. We had we had good talent within the change room, but he he helped us all get to the next level. And and that season we just went we went on to the next level of football. We were dominating teams, dominating games. With, with the top team Shamrock Rovers Bohemians at the time um, and we became a real force within the league and and from a personal point of view I, I was enjoying it. I was enjoying the work every day I was enjoying looking after myself and I was enjoying winning and the, the football we were allowed to play under Paul Cook was was brilliant um, so yeah then I, I was fortunate enough at the end of the season I'd, I'd had a good season and uh, I think the the thing that stood out to me most about winning Player of the Year was, or that I appreciated most about winning Player of the Year is, is that it was the it was the players Player of the Year, the the players that you play against every week. So, um, that that was that was the thing that satisfied me most. It was the the players around the league that that thought I was the best player. So, um, the the kick up the backside that I got, it it worked out in the end. Did you get a pay rise? I did.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is a. This
2: um, is, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Funny <laughs> one. The, the the chairman that offered me the hundred euros a week, the, the year before, he he was he was still hard work. He was still hard work. I give him that. Um, to, to try and get a decent pay rise out. Of him. But um, I, I had I had all, I had other options at that time as well, so I had a little bit of a little bit of bargaining power at that stage.
1: That, that that that's a great story. I, I'm glad that that, that you share with us because you know what? Like I'm stubborn, and there's nothing more. There's there's. I feel like it's the best feeling is like proving everybody wrong. Yeah. <laughs> as as a stubborn person, I'm telling you. But it's just the personality. Everybody has different personalities. But yeah. I'm glad that things work out for you. So do you? Once you were named like Player of the Year, and you prove everybody wrong. Uh, what was your take on it, like, do you have, do you had any interaction with the president? Like, do you guys have like an off-record conversation and say like, yeah, I told you it was going to be,
0: um, prove he,
1: everybody wrong, etc. You know, I, I we was know sitting, how
0: Carlos
3: is now. Sorry, Richie. We know how Carlos is now, Anthony. Yeah, you're, you're crazy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you went and told him like, I told yeah. you, you know.
2: <laughs> he was actually sitting at the same table as me, Carlos, at the at the function. So. Um, I had a huge smile on my face. Uh, he, he, That's he the to, best. He <laughs> tried to take credit for it, and I wasn't—I wasn't too inclined to to give him much credit for it at that moment, <laughs> um, because all, all I was thinking was you offered me 100 quid a week. So, but looking back on it now, he probably, he probably does deserve credit for it because if he didn't offer me that contract, then I, I wouldn't have got the. The reality check that I needed at that time in my career. You, you were probably sitting there Richie, going, uh, this is gonna cost you, you fucker. <laughs> <laughs> sitting there looking across at Michael O'Neill, Jammer Grovers manager, saying, You're, Oh, yeah, uh, you better put that back in the floating of of Michael. Um, no, look it, it it's a, it's a story that you, you just have to believe in yourself. I, I at that at that time it was either Take a contract there, prove people wrong. Go to Galway, be part time, or, or stay full time in Sligo. And I, I wanted to stay
1: full time footballer,
2: so I needed to. I needed to screw my head on.
1: That's great. And speaking of teammates, now in your current team, I see that, and I think we were discussing this earlier. It kind of looks like you play in the United Nations because <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you got you you have like an American goalkeeper, you have a Canadian, then uh, Drew Becky. Yeah. And you have Spanish, you have Colombians, you have a guy from Mexico, obviously, like you play in Texas. It has to be a guy from Mexico. Otherwise, like <laughs> that, that, it's riot with the supporters, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, English. So I'm wondering like all these different nationalities that has influenced your, your style. Cause, cause you're a midfielder, you know, midfielders are very versatile the way they play, you know, sometimes like they hold it, etc. So yeah. these, uh multicultural team has influenced you in your in your game like nowadays
2: I I wouldn't say so Carlos you speak there about midfielders being versatile I'm I'm definitely not the most versatile midfielder you'll ever see so uh, (laughs) no it's it's one of the things I've enjoyed most about coming to North America is you get to play with players from from all over the world like South America different European countries American players Canadian players a lot of Argentinians, Brazilians coming to America, so they they all bring a, a a different style that you can learn from. You, you can learn something mm-hmm. from from every player. You can learn something from every coach. I, and I think that the style of player that we have here are very fortunate that we have a coach that that likes to play a stylish type of football. So, um, you know, we bring Colombians, we bring Mexicans. Last season we had Argentinians, um, Brazilians. You know, we we bring we bring players that. It's like to have the ball. Um, so it, it, it's, been, it's been brilliant for me over the last six, six seasons to experience playing with, with players from, from different backgrounds and different cultures. Uh, I, I, I can't n- not let you
0: uh, uh, go without you asking about this. So you, when you moved to uh, what, Miami,
2: uh, Nesta was your manager. What was it like playing for him? Ah, brilliant. brilliant. The, one of the most intense people I've ever met. Um, (laughs) as as a coach one of the most intense I've met on the training pitch but off off the training pitch the most relaxed man just standing there with smoke um, chilled never never very down to earth person never spoke about his achievements in the game unless somebody asked him a question and then he'd he'd answer the question but he'd never go into full detail you know he's a he very relaxed and laid back person and I think fo- football wise just a wealth of knowledge he's obviously he's, he's won everything there is to be won in the game um, one of the best defenders of all time played with some of the best players of all time so for us as players in Miami um, like, like listen, I was saying about like the first season is always difficult for, for the club trying to Put a squad of twenty twenty two players together in the first season at Miami. We struggled. We struggled to to find the consistency, but he always stuck to his principles. He always stuck to the same system. He stuck to the way he wanted to play. Um, even though the results weren't going our way, and then it got to the end of the season, and a few play, a few players left, and and he went out and he brought in four or five players that he knew were going to take us to the next level. I think that the following season we won we won the regular season by. I think I was at 17 or 18 points. Um, and then we got beat in the playoffs. But in, in my eyes, if you if you win if you win the season by 17 or 18 points, then you you're the best team. Uh, well, welcome so, to America, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like you know, it, that that's it's difficult for me to to accept stuff like that because yeah. you you might as well just say the regular season doesn't mean anything that I I always kind of think I don't know how you feel about this, but
0: uh, Roy Keane would be another example and stuff like that. And I wonder how Thierry Henry is going to do it, But these guys who are superstars, who are like the best of, of the best in, in, in the game, and then they become yeah. managers, and they're not managing. That's not to be whatever, but like they're not the top clubs in the world. Like, do they do they yeah. struggle because because obviously, um, obviously in their head they're like you know they should be doing this, but
2: yeah. I don't. The they don't realize that. You can't because you're, you're not at the same level. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, I, yeah. I think definitely in the fourth season, Nesta struggled with that to accept the mistakes that players at this level make, and and wasn't very good at hiding his emotions with with how disappointed he was with these mistakes being made. But he, he just wanted the best for everyone. He he wanted a win. He he'd been a winner his whole career, and he wanted the players to be winners as well. But yeah, on, on the training pitch, if you if if you done something wrong, you, you'd know all about it. And he and he like if you gave a a pass away or you didn't do a drill properly, he'd keep going and going and going until that drill was perfected. So like so some some mornings now you're training in the Miami Heat as well. Some mornings you could be out on the training pitch for two and a half hours. Jesus. Because because he wouldn't have been happy with an attacking drill or with us playing out from the back or whatever, whatever it might've been, he would just keep going and going and going until he reached a level where he was happy with the product.
0: So are you fluent in Italian swear words? Um.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Who, who, uh, who else was his staff, Richie? His assistant manager was a, a coach that he met on, on his coaching license in Italy. Okay, uh, Lorenzo Rubinacci. very, okay. very good person, very good coach. Um, small, small little fellow. Coached at Lecce, he was oh. at Lecce, Perugia, some good clubs in Italy, and then he spent some time in Africa coaching himself. And then he was in the Premier Division in Romania, I think, before before he got the opportunity to come to Miami. Wow.
4: Um,
2: and then the technical director was. Italian as well there was, there was a lot of Italians in the club did Maldini, Maldini own some of it yeah Maldini was, was like a silent owner we never seen Paolo Maldini I don't know <laughs> I don't know how much Paolo Maldini invested into the club I think it might have been a PR stunt from the owner who was a, a big a huge AC Milan fan Ricardo Silva and Maldini was part owner of the club but Maldini was never seen in Miami FC. The whole two over two years, I was there. Maybe he was there and you just didn't see him. Oh, you'd see him. <laughs> <laughs> F- fortunate enough, actually, to meet uh, Andrea Pirlo. What? We, what? Yeah, yeah. We we uh, we played away to New York when, when Pirlo was at FC. A friendly? No, we we played New York Cosmos in the league. We we were in the. I, I've never. Like I wouldn't be one for going up to a famous player or whatever, but when he walked into the room, my heart started racing. Of course, like, oh my god, this fellow's a genius. Yeah, like he's one of my favorite players of all time. Him and uh, him and Nesta used to room together. Like he, he was talking to Nesta in the room. We were all eating our dinner, and uh, one of one of our players used to play with him. And what will Poku used to play at New York with him? And uh, he started chatting to him. And then a couple of the boys asked him for pictures. And I'm like, I can't, I can't miss out on this opportunity. So he was walking out the door with Nesta. And I just I thought, fuck it, I'm getting up here. And the boys were like, just go and ask him, go and ask him. Like, yeah, fuck it, I'm going. So I got up and walked out the door and I said, just ask him if you could have a picture. And it's funny, actually, the picture of me and him, you can see Nesta just standing behind us as well. Jesus Christ. Uh, in a picture with two, two legends of the game.
1: Nice. Um,
0: did, you, did you say to Pirlo, uh, what's the story with you stealing my style, style there, Andre?
2: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Why are you so cool?
1: <laughs> Just those passes.
2: Oh my. That's, that's what I mean. Like, Pirlo was never quick, never fast. He's he seen the game quicker than anybody else. So, Elegant. Yeah. The, for, for me, in the defensive midfield role, Pirlo, Bush Gets, Xavi Alonso, yep. Yep. Um, just all players that dictated the game with the ball. You know, so, and- so, so Richie, you got
0: to play also with, uh, I'm a Tottenham fan and I annoyed the lads because I was being talking up with into these podcasts, but you got to play with Wilson uh, Palacios, right? Oh my God. Yeah, w- Wilson
2: was <laughs> at Miami when I was there, yeah. So, so what, what was he like as a player and uh, as a person? A great person um, and then Wilson, suffered, he struggled with injuries at Miami. Um, I, I think he came in. He was, he was probably a little bit overweight. Um, he'd, been, he'd been out of football, I think, for a year, a year and a half when Miami signed him. It, it's difficult, in my opinion, for, for players of that stature that have been at that level if they spend that long out of the game to come back and have the, the desire and the hunger to play at our level. You know, I I I think that's difficult for them mentally because they're not they're not playing with players that are of the same level as them, so they they become frustrated. But Wilson Wilson was brilliant for this for the squad of players that we had. He gave everybody confidence and enthusiasm. Trained hard every day. Some of the things he do in training, you just look at him and go, "He what a player! What a player!" Like his strength on the ball, the way he used his body to to protect the ball. Now, I remember seeing him play at Tottenham years ago and at Wigan, and he was more of a, a box-to-box player and he'd just be bombing forward. And then he'd, he'd become a little bit more defensive the older he got. And when, when he was at Miami, he, he was he was far more defensive than what he was going box-to-box. Um, but yeah, just the way he used his body to protect the ball and a good range of passing. He was very, very relaxed player. Very calm on the ball and stuff. And then, like I said, a good person, really good person. Um, yeah, and he left at the end of the fourth season. I think, he, I believe he went back to Honduras to play for, for a year or two.
0: I'm kind of glad that, like, you got to, to learn something from him, though, right? Like, I mean, it's, it sounds like for, a little...
2: For, for, that's the thing, Anthony. It's probably the beauty of playing lower league football in North America, or mm-hmm. playing football in general in North America, is for players like me, you get random opportunities to play with players like that. For me, to to play with somebody like Wilson Palacios is, makes me proud to have an opportunity to play with somebody like that, or to play against Raul, who was at New York Cosmos, and, and yep. Martin Senna, who was at Mar- New York Cosmos. Two, two top players that have won the World Cup are the European Championships of Spain, and Numerous trophies, Real Madrid and Senna when he was at Villarreal. And then Wilson's obviously played top-level Premier League. Um, and, then, and to have the mad opportunity to work under a coach like Alessandro Nesta. I think that's the, the beauty of the sport over here for a, lot of, for a lot of players that don't get the chance to play at that level. Mm. They still get the chance over here to play with players that have played at that level and, and learn from it. Because there's, ultimately there's a reason why them players play at that level. So if you can pick their brain and, and see what they do on a daily basis, then it's gonna make you better as a player. Yeah, you're right. Man.
0: I, I I couldn't see uh Raoul turning up in Finn Harps or something like that. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> so and, I, I don't know if Bali Buffet would be for Raul. <laughs> <gonna keep>,
1: like. <laughs> going towards uh that, that direction, um, what do you think of the US level? Um, do you like do you think that eventually it will be like uh relegation system what do you think about that
2: oh, what do I think about it? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. what do the El
3: Paso fans think I guess
2: you know what the, the more I see fans post on social media and stuff about this topic Chris the more I think fans want this they, wow there you go Carlos jeez yeah I'm surprised by that go on Richie well may, maybe that's just me seeing what I want to see Mm-hmm. I, I think for, for the excitement, for the pressure, for for everything, for football, football is mm-hmm. not the, it's not the same as hockey, baseball, basketball, American football. It's a totally different sport that's played everywhere across the world, and in in all the big nations, there's promotional relegation in place. Yeah, that, that was a bullet you were saying
3: you were talking earlier about how you were ahead by so many points in the season and then come the playoffs, you lost, but you still felt like you were the best team. Yeah. That's a, that's a different, it's such a different adjustment for North American sports fans because like uh, even I'll, I'll just use hockey for an example. Even in the NHL, they have what's called the president's cup where the team that finishes with the best record, best points during the regular season, they win this trophy, but there's this superstition that the the team that wins that trophy doesn't touch the cup because the Next one. the the Stanley Cup is the end all be all the goal. So yeah, yeah.
2: sorry. Continue, brother. I'm sorry. No, no. Like you said, it it's just a strange one for me. Like he, yeah, you, you see, whoever wins the MLS regular season, there's nothing made of it.
3: Yeah, and there's what's that called? call the supporter shield or something like that. The supporter shield. But it's, it's like you said, there's nothing made out of.
2: That's, I've heard uh, Bob Bradley speak about last season at LAFC, and he mentioned that the most important thing to him and LAFC is winning the regular season because you work hard all season to make sure you're the best after 34, 35 games, whatever it is. Um, I, I, I think it's disrespectful that a team of coaches, technical staff, players work hard every day, every week, to win games every week and finish the season at the top, and then nothing's made of it. Um, and then they can go out the following Saturday and get beat because the referee or VAR or whatever makes a bad decision for a penalty, uh, and they get beat 1-0. That, that, that just happened here in Canada, not to be that
3: guy. We've had a few Cavalry guys on the show, but...
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cavalry... I, I know, I know. A couple of the boys are ca- uh, Cavalry, so... There you go. There you go. Yeah, that, that's the example for me. And In my career was when we were at Miami and we won the league by so many points and then we played New York Cosmos the week after and then went to penalties and we got penalties and San Francisco, who were 19 points behind us in the league, beat Cosmos in the final and they're, they're the NASL champions. And they... Yeah. are they really are they really champions?
0: I, yeah. I think it's just as you said though, it's like it, it took I think the North American audience get used to even draws and games like yeah, their yeah. heads around. So I it's it's I and I think there's also because they're still building the league and
2: expanding it that mm-hmm. there's so much money involved. Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it, Anthony, is that the money that's involved and you look at the you look at the franchise fees for MLS clubs now. It's insane. Um, so there, the, there, need, there would need to be a huge plan uh, of um, parachute payments if, if these clubs did get relegated. But like, on the flip side of that, you, you never have the beautiful story of a, well Fleetwood or someone like that making a way to the Premier League. Bournemouth, Yeah, mm. for example, Brighton. You're never going to have that in America. You're never going to have El Paso having a really good season Finishing top of the USL and getting promoted into the MLS with the big with the big fish. Yeah, no, and that's with clubs and for players.
3: With that said, though, not to like say you're wrong, your guys' season last year was an example of how the playoff structure can kind of create that drama. But I think in the sport of soccer, football, we're so used to the full table concept that. The North American model, which mimics the NBA, the NHL, NFL, it's just it, it it still seems weird, even though it's been the norm since the MLS adopted in '96, I think it was. So yeah. yeah,
2: it it is it is strange. Like in, actually, last last year we finished sixth in the regular season. Yeah, because during the middle of the season we weren't consistent enough. Use Phoenix as an example. Phoenix ran away with the league, um, and then they play Real Monarchs in the playoffs. After they beat Austin, and they get beat, yeah. and it took got Phoenix, the struggled or whatever in the playoffs. They can't deal with the play, can't deal with the playoffs. They, de- they dealt with winning games every week. It's just a one-off game, you know what I mean? So you, I, I find it very hard to to put criticism on a team that's done really well all season and then lose a one-off game in the playoffs like you said it it does make for exciting moments because it's it is one off one off games where anything can happen in 90 minutes or 120 minutes whatever it might be so
0: so if you, if your team had won the championship like last year you would have handed like your winner's medal back and the trophy <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: my god <laughs>
2: I, I, I believe it would have been a ring, Anthony. So. Oh, you've
0: been punching in the face, is what he's saying.
2: <laughs> so I, I, I'm not a big jewelry person, so I might have to. Like. Uh,
4: total
0: yeah. bling, man. Total bling. Uh, is, so. is that is that a fact, though? Is it a ring instead of a medal for the USL? Um, I believe so, yeah. I, oh, okay. I believe it's a ring, yeah. Um, it's not sovereign, is it? <laughs> taking <a> my <Mikey. laughs> Oh God! Taking me back to your youth, back in Dublin. Big, big time. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few of those. I've got a few of those uh, USL rings up my of my jewelry box. Just made you. So um, we we really appreciate you taking like so much time with you, yes, brother. I a point. Just when we're, uh, when we're finishing up the show, we just kind of ask a couple of like little kind of quick for you kind of questions. So, Ridgie, yeah. you played with the Ants, Royal Antwerp. Yeah.
3: Well, I was, I was there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you said he was there.
3: Um, I'm a big Manchester United fan. Did yeah. you play with any of the boys? I know yeah. that Ryan Shawcross and Craig Cathrate, were, they were there yeah. kind of around
2: that. Craig was there with me. Okay, Cool. Kaffert. Any of the other boys? Um, no, the year before, the year before I got there, Chris was a uh, Don Shawcross, yeah, Danny Welbeck, Darren Gibson. Oh shit! Played, played with Craig Kafkart The season yep. I was there, and um, the season before, Shawcross, Gibson, Welbeck. I'm sure, I'm sure Welbeck was there. Okay, they were all young lads around the same time. There was somebody else I can't remember. Can't remember who it was. They, we we actually was it Dong the Chinese fella? He was there, yeah. Despite yeah. Because yeah.
3: yeah. he had he had a great he he had a great couple of years in Belgium. And yeah. like, like, Fergie signed him. Had a great couple of years. We sold some kits, and then he was gone.
2: Yeah, he he was there the year before me because I remember there, there was posters up in the in the canteen area and stuff mm. from the year before. I think they had a decent season. Um. Yeah, great, great club. Uh, great club. There was a lot of a lot of money invested in the club from Manchester United at the time. Okay. Um and now I, I think the club is the club's been taken over since by yeah. multi, multi millionaire owners and they've rebuilt the rebuilt the stadium and yeah. I think they're doing really well actually in the in the Belgian Premier League. Yeah, they they have, as a matter of fact, yeah. So I think they're paying a lot more money now as well, which is disappointing. <laughs> Two hundred Euros a week. <laughs> no, Yeah, Anthony, it wasn't worth more back then.
3: No, because like when like I like said, like I said, last year you guys were one of my favorite football stories and, and top to bottom, I'm I'm a football nerd and I just study all your guys' resumes and when I saw you guys play for the w- w- sorry, you guys. When I saw that you played for the ants, yeah. I was like, I gotta ask him who he played with because um the partnership died out, I think, five or six years ago. But yeah, you started playing for them is when the regular loans kind of started to die out a little bit.
2: And I think so, it was it was around that time. Yeah, that the, the partnership like that was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Yeah, um, started to dry up a little bit then because the manager was Warren Joyce, English fella, and he he ended yeah. up he he became the reserve team coach. Well, um, he, was, he was a Manchester United coach too. Yeah, he, he, he ended up, he, he, I'm sure he, he took the Antwerp job from, I think he was Leeds. He was an academy coach at Leeds because that's how I knew him. Oh, okay. I playing against him when I was at Sunderland. And then he, went, he got the job at Antwerp, obviously through connections or whatever. Um, and then he ended up getting back. He took the reserve team job at Man United at the end of that season.
0: He's uh he's Salford City's uh, reserve manager right you now. Yeah, yeah, he,
2: he's he's done his
4: rounds. Well.
2: He went to he went to Wigan, I think. He short stint at Wigan, and then he was the manager of Melbourne, oh, City, I yeah. think. I I, I googled that. It. Uh, I'm not that knowledgeable about Warren Joyce. I, I,
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, you you took my place this time, Anthony, because usually I'm the one who goes on Google to do a little bit of research. So that works. I didn't want to sound like Stato there, but uh, yeah, um, yeah. But but I guess he probably got that job at Salford because he was the United Reserve team, so he probably knew Gary Neville and the boys from. from them.
2: Uh, yeah, he would have known Gary Neville. I think uh, the boy Casper is there as well. Chris is Chris Casper. Yeah, yeah. Usually at Man United with Neville and Boughton Skulls and all them. Um. So yeah, there's a, a strong connection there.
0: So, uh, yeah, so w- w- when we come to the end of the show, we just kind of have a few kind of questions that we pretty much ask everybody. Uh, you kind of answer this one, but Carlos, far away there, bud.
1: I think he already answered uh, his favorite three so, uh, players. One was Busquets, Messi, and Pirlo, right?
2: Um, no, that, that, that was for the, I suppose, the, the number six role.
1: Uh, oh, okay.
2: okay. favorite players were probably Xavi, Iniesta, and Pirlo.
1: Solid so, choices, though.
0: Yeah, big time. So, uh, Richie, you're going to play in a, a five-a-side tournament. You get to pick players that you uh, played alongside. Who's in your team?
2: Okay. Um, players that played alongside. Do we need a goalkeeper? Or can I go no, no keeper? You can go no goalkeeper. Right. Um, yeah, well, no, I'll put a keeper in. Probably the best keeper I played with was um, a boy called Daniel Vega. Um, Plays for San Jose Earthquakes now. Argentinian. Played for uh, River Plate in Argentina. Played in Cyprus. He, um, and then I played with him in Miami. And he, he's, still, he's the number one at San Jose now. Okay. Um, then, and I'd probably just pick attackers because I don't like defenders. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> don't trust them. Well, uh,
2: um, yeah, jo- I'd probably say Joseph Ndoe. Yes. Probably the best player, best individual player I've played with just because he could control a game, he could do tricks, he could dribble people, he could pass, he could, he could do everything. Um, Cameroon International played in a couple of World Cups. Um, big influence on the game back in Ireland and was a huge influence on us at Sligo at the time. Um, then, say, Pete, I don't know, Anthony, do you remember Peter Beagery?
0: Yes, I played for, played for Everton and... Uh, he was like the, he was kind of like a, a wizard on the wing kind of guy, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, play, I played with Peter Beagree. I think Peter was 36, 37 at the time. But right foot, left foot. He he was amazing. Yeah, he, he was brilliant at Everton, Man City, um, Bradford, when Bradford were good at the time. Um, yeah, probably have him in as well. Because right foot, left foot, just chopping fullbacks inside out. I don't know, the best goalscorer I've probably played with. There's a boy called Owen Doyle. Um, plays for, he played at Swindon this year. I think as of now, he's the top scorer in all divisions in England. From Owen his, Doyle? Owen Doyle from this season. Yeah, he's from Tala. Okay. He started. started the season at Bradford and then he went on loan to Swindon. And I, I don't know, he's got a bike full of goals this season. I'm not 100% sure, but he's... He definitely was close to, close to when the seasons got suspended. He was definitely the top, top scorer across all four divisions in England. Yeah, played with him at, at Sligo for a couple of seasons and literally just a fox in the box. Like, if he got a chance, it was a goal.
0: So um, 20, When he was on loan at Swindon, 23 goals in 22 games. Holy yeah. shit. Fuck. Yeah. Um, I know you said that you don't like defenders there. Is that because you don't like Mason uh, Trafford?
2: <laughs> I love Mason I, I love Mason um, I, me and Mason are good friends we, we out, they had a couple well I literally played my whole career in North America with Mason until, until 2018 and I left Miami I, I played the first four seasons two in Ottawa and two in Miami with Mason um, brilliant player yeah, he's
0: like, had like quite a career too. Like he's been all, he has been, he was in China and stuff like that. So China, I think he played in Scandinavia.
2: Um, yeah, fuck it. He's talking his way into the fucking
4: thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just
2: did really
0: was watched- did- uh, I just, I just really wanted uh, a CPL player to get into your team, man. So thanks for doing that. It'll, help, it'll, it'll help
2: with, the, it'll, it'll help with the listens. So, listen <laughs> yeah, in there, and a, if, if you want another one, then put a Oliver Minotel in there as well. Okay, perfect. He's
0: the man. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, um, the your favorite kit you've ever played in,
2: favorite jersey. Oh, fuck. Um favourite jersey the jerseys when we were when we were younger were a lot baggier so <laughs> uh, a lot less stylish than what the ones are now um, I'd probably go we had an all an all white one at Miami all white with a, like a what like a a tip of sky blue on it nice that was 2017 I think yeah white white with a little uh, a strip of sky blue on the on the fringes, of it. And uh, your favourite boots? Uh, the new, the new, more modern version of Copa Mundial. Copa Monday <sighs> Sweet. They've, uh, they've, taken, they've taken the Monday out of way now. They're just Copas.
1: They're, they're so good.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're very comfortable. The older I've got, the more, the more I'm about comfort than anything else you'll be playing in slippers with studs huh <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> um,
1: that's so, the best way to describe it I guess yeah so the, um, the the
0: food the Irish food that you miss the most Irish food that I miss the most Guinness the, 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 yeah
1: because <laughs> a, gla- a pint of Guinness is like having supper man that, that's true
2: <laughs> that's true if you're considering that as food then I go Guinness
1: Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll give you that one.
0: I, I was yeah. hoping that you'd say like, like a batter burger or something like that, but whatever. Um, I take I it, take Guinness now over a batter burger. Huh? Yeah, that's true. Me too, man. Uh, pre-game meal, pre-game song, pre-game superstition. I'm, I'm
2: probably the opposite of all them, Chris. <laughs> I, I literally don't, I don't have any sort okay. I I probably – I put my left – I always put my left side on first that's probably yeah. the only thing i don't i don't really i don't listen to music whatever the lads have yeah. on the speaker in the dressing room so you, do you got like a gatorade or do you just drink water
3: is like is there is there something specific that you have to have every game or
2: no, particularly I, I i would have i would have a gatorade before before yeah. a game just to hope, hopefully keeps me hydrated for longer so i can keep running but no no specific i need this or i need that before a game what about after I need a drink.
4: Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> Love
3: it. Is, is it a Guinness or is, is that like the post-game choice or do you go a little bit stronger? Um,
2: I, I don't know if I trust having a Guinness in El Paso, Texas now, to be honest.
1: <laughs> J- Jameson it is.
2: Um, no, it, pro- probably just a beer, to be honest. Just a
3: quench the thirst after a game. The El Paso soccer culture reminds me a lot about Halifax. Yeah, I don't know if this is the perfect way to end the show or not, but just run a shout out your fans, shout out your friends, tell us about the El Paso culture, because like I said, watching the USL over the last year, I suppose now, yeah, I guess it's been a year, year plus, um, talking to them on YouTube, talking to them through the ESPN app, I've gotten to know a lot of them, and they seem like amazing people, so... Just tell me about El Paso, that culture. I think for a
2: first season club, the the way the front office staff and the fans have, have connected. The the football culture that's already in the community here is mm-hmm. something that I, is something that I haven't seen before. It, it's you know, I've been to a lot of cities around America and I've played in a lot of stadiums around America. But playing in our stadium, there's already an atmosphere. You don't yeah. have to put on a different show or a different event before the game to get the fans going. The fans are at our games because they love football. There's a there's a huge football heritage here. Yeah. It's very much a football city rather than other American cities that I've, that I've been to that are, okay, maybe our football is third or fourth choice sport within that city it's it's 100% number one mm. down here and um, and for us as players that's that's what you want you, you want you want to go on you want to feel a good atmosphere you want your fans to be behind you you want them to be singing and chanting for 90 minutes and that's that's what they do even, even when we get beat which is was strange for me when I came to America first mm-hmm. because if you get beat back home the fans don't want to have anything to do with you Um, so to to have the fans behind you all the time it's a a breath of fresh air and hopefully we can get back playing this season and and have more success on the pitch and and for for future years to come with that
0: So Richie just want to thank you for taking so much time out to to hang out with us and uh, talk football and all that kind of good stuff Um, if people want to follow you on uh, social media where do they need to go to find you? Um, Twitter and Instagram the same uh, Richie Ryan 20 Richie okay. Ryan 20 and uh, what's so special about Grenade Protein Bars they taste great <laughs> great pitch man <laughs> alright buddy I really really appreciate you hanging out with us it's, it's been amazing so um, no problem. take care of yourself and hopefully we get to see you
2: playing soon hope so fellas take care thanks very much yes, for having
1: us take care peace out
2: Thank you. Cheers, guys.
0: Take care, Richie, man. Thank you very much, brother, and all the love to your family. You've been listening to the Down the Pub podcast. Thanks again to Richie, Carlos, and Chris for hanging out. Thank you to the listeners for taking the time out to listen to us talk about football. We really do appreciate your support. You can always follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And until next time, cheers. You've been listening to the Down the Pub podcast, recorded in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Head to downthepub.ca to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, cheers.